Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shaberman with the Foundation Fighting Blindness, and I'm very excited to have as my guest for this episode, Dr. Jason Commander. He's a retinal disease clinical researcher and director of the Inherited Retinal Disorders Service at Mass Eye and Ear, which is part of Harvard Medical School. Jason, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and I've been looking forward to this. Well, we are excited to have you talk about your career and some very exciting research that you recently concluded. And we are going to spend much of the podcast discussing the work that Dr. Pierce and Jason did in reanalyzing patient data from Dr. Elliot Burson's original well-known clinical trial for vitamin A supplementation therapy for retinitis pigmentosa. That study was conducted about four decades ago and has been the subject of much discussion and controversy in the retinal research community. But I would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to talk about Jason's impressive background and important contributions to retinal disease research and patient care in other areas. So Jason earned his MD and PhD from Harvard Medical School, and he completed a Harvard ophthalmology residency, a vitreo-retinal surgery fellowship, and inherited retinal disease training at Mass Eye and Ear. And in his early clinical career, he was the recipient of a career development award from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. We're very proud of the work he did in receiving that award. And while Jason has also led genetics-related research efforts in the lab, what's most impressive to me is his role as surgeon and lead investigator in several clinical trials. In fact, Jason and his team performed the first procedure for an FDA-approved gene therapy for any inherited disease, and that was in 2018, and the gene therapy was Luxterna, which has restored significant vision to hundreds of people with RPE65 mutations around the world. And also in 2020, Jason and the Mass Ear team performed one of the first gene editing surgeries to deliver a CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing therapy directly to the human body, or as the experts like to say, in vivo. So Jason, let's start at your beginning. I'd like to hear about where you grew up and what was fun for you as a kid. Were you really into science at a young age? And uh, what what kind of led you to uh, get into science and clinical care? First of all, thank you for that very kind introduction. I, I get embarrassed easily, and uh, I just need to point out that a lot of those accomplishments that you mentioned, I was part of big teams of people, Luxterna, was as people have been at Penn and elsewhere around the world have been working on that for 30 years. So I try not to take uh, too much credit for any one thing, but I, I really appreciate the, uh, the intro very much. As you might expect for someone who has gotten into medical research and science, 
I was indeed interested in techie things when I was a kid. So I had a bin of things in my bedroom. And when anything electronic broke in my house, I would put it in the bin and I would take it apart and try to figure out how it works. And it was only when I got a little bit older that I was able to start putting things back together again. My favorite course in college was electronics and I love tinkering with gadgets and things. And I think that a part of my job where I get to play with gadgets and do technical things, it's like, I'm amazed, like, you know, it's part of my salary to, to do this fun stuff. So from a young age, that was my affinity. But that translated into biology, really. And the eye. So can you talk about at what point in your career you decided to move into biological sciences and specifically the eye? Yeah, it's kind of one of those coincidences. When I was 16, I saw a CNN biomedical engineering special. And like every 16-year-old, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I said to my mom, oh, that biomedical engineering, that looks interesting. And she said, oh, uh, one of our family friends did a fellowship in a biomedical engineering lab at Baskin Palmer Eye Institute in Miami, maybe we can get you a tour. And I got a tour and I managed to talk it into like a part-time job. This was when I was a teenager. And uh, I started in the basement, like, you know, sorting screws and doing all kinds of things. And eventually I uh, worked my way up out of the basement into doing some data analysis and mathematical projects. And I had a really great kind mentor, Jean-Marie Perel, who's a great man. And he kind of had faith in me and took me under his wing. And before I knew it, I was 17 years old doing an oral presentation at Arvo on the temperature distribution of, uh, of the cornea. And that was my start into ophthalmic research when I was a teenager. And I tried other things along the way, like I did some cardiology research for my PhD, but nothing is more interesting than the eye. And I just kept coming back to it. And, and here I am. And you mentioned this mentor. Can you say his name again and where he was at? Sure. Jean-Marie Perel is a biomedical engineer who runs a lab at Baskin Palmer Eye Institute. Got it. That's really cool that you really got hooked into our space even before college. I was very fortunate. It certainly did help me get into college. So I appreciate I'm, I'm sure. I wonder if I saw your, what year was your Arvo poster when you were 17? Can I ask? Must have been 1991 or something oh, like that. Oh, okay. Okay. That was before my time at the foundation. Interesting. So you moved into the ophthalmology space and in reading your credentials and doing research, you've done just about all of your education and residency, fellowships, et cetera, at Mass Ioneer. What drew you to Harvard and Mass Ioneer? Well, I didn't mean for it to happen that way. That's all Harvard affiliated training, but at every at every turn, it was the best opportunity. You know, if you want to uh, do good work, the most important thing is to be around good people who can teach you and you have to work up to their level. And um, here I am and here I stay and I couldn't be happier. It's really privileged to work here specifically at Mass Ioneer in, in inherited retinal diseases. Right. And we're delighted to have you at Mass Ioneer. And for our listeners who don't know, Mass Ioneer was the first research center that the foundation funded just after the foundation was established in the early 70s. So yes. you really started at the top. 
a uh, the history is really interesting to me and really important. Every morning when I walk into work, I pass by the sign in the hallway that says the Berman Gun Laboratory for the Study of Retinal Degenerations, founded in 1974 with support from the Retinitis Pigmentosa Foundation. It was this little organization, like you said, founded in, in 1971, which in the 80s and 90s got renamed to the Foundation Finding Blindness. And here we are now. Look at, look at all that FFB does. Because of that early support here, we have this like decades long history of inherited retinal disease and RP research. And we're, I'm sure we're going to get into the details of that real soon. We are. But one question before we start talking about the vitamin A study. So you do retinal surgery, and I'm always awed and amazed by doctors who do retinal surgery. Did you always know you wanted to be a surgeon? And is this part of the tinkering you did as a kid in high school, you know, having an affinity for, well, electronics is a little different from sticking a needle underneath somebody's retina. But anyway, is that an extension of that? In some ways, it's more of an extension of, of something else, which is my mentors have kind of like advised me to keep my options open about what I can do. And that very first mentor that I talked about, Dr. Perel, I was working in his lab and he's a PhD scientist. He said, Jason, make sure you get your MD too, because you know I have to rely on the MDs to test what I've come up with and uh, you should really get an MD too. So I did, I got an MD and a PhD, a combined program. And that was great advice because I love being at the intersection between the lab and the clinic. It's just so exciting. And part of what is so exciting is the potential for helping people. You know, I, I love the technical things and I can stay up all night doing a computer program or a data analysis or, or whatever. But I remember one time uh, we were doing an experiment on animals and, um, we were trying to come up with a new way to deliver gene therapy to the inner retina, like for optic nerve disorders or glaucoma or whatever. And I looked into this eye and I saw that the gene therapy had turned the retina fluorescent like it was supposed to. But this was the first time we'd ever seen the inner retina glowing like that green fluorescent protein. And I turned to the fellow that was next to me that was, that was helping me. And I said, I said, wow, I think this is going to help people someday. And it was just a very special moment for me. And, you know, this whole field is going through the this transformation of gene therapy hitting the clinic and starting to work. And because of this interest, so I'll give you a related story. When I was a resident, I had heard about the early work on what's now Luxterna. Dr. Eric Pierce, who's the director of the Ocular Genomics Institute here, used to be at Penn with Gene Bennett and Al McGuire and the whole team there that I've been working on uh, Luxterna for like 30 years now. And I was excited about that because the potential for gene therapy to actually work was amazing for these molecular diseases that we're trying to help people with. So I got in contact through, through Dr. Pierce to Dr. McGuire, and I said, can I come watch one of your surgeries? I was in residency at the time, and there was no reason for me to like go watch. I wasn't doing anything or helping anything. And he very graciously said, sure, come to Penn. And so I went to Philadelphia, and he brought me into the OR, and I watched him deliver what's now Lexterna to a clinical trial patient. And it was amazing. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And I was so inspired. I came back and I decided to do my, my next grant was about inherited uh, retinal disease research. And it was so um, important to me 
that I, I wanted to be able to take whatever we came up with in the lab and see it through to the people. And also, it's such a joy, and maybe it's maybe selfish, but it's such a joy to be able to help people like that. I love treating patients with Lexterna. It's so rewarding. And I'm going on and on, but you can just tell how, uh, how special all this is to me. So when people come back after being treated with Lexterna, not everyone, but a fraction of them describe how uh, they can see better at night now. Sometimes I feel like they almost didn't appreciate how like miraculous this is. And I say, you know, people have been coming to this clinic with RP and LCA for like 50 years. And you're one of the first few people who have ever gotten better. And they're like, oh, <laughs> so being involved in all this uh, makes all the surgery training and the time that I spent uh, building up to that worthwhile. Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of the people who are getting treated are pretty young and they don't have an appreciation for how long this journey has been to get to this point. And I think the other important point is that the success of Luxterna has really provided affirmation and a path forward for other gene therapies and genetic therapies to move forward. But I want to just get back to a point that I made earlier in introducing you that you delivered the first FDA approved gene therapy, which was Luxterna. You were the first one to deliver that. And that wasn't just for the retina. That was the first FDA approved gene therapy for any inherited condition. So that was a huge milestone. I don't know if when you were observing Al McGuire and team several years ago, if you had imagined you would be in that place to be the first to deliver the actual Luxterna, but that that's pretty exciting. You're exactly right. So I was assuming this whole time that since he's been working on it for 30 years, that Al McGuire would do the first one, but somehow his hospital got caught up in some red tape and they weren't able to do it. And uh, I asked my wife if I should like rearrange my clinic schedule so that we could do it right away. And she's like, yes, you definitely have to do that. So I give her credit for, for us being the first one, but it wasn't just about us doing it first. It was really eye-opening to, to be involved with the commercial rollout of a gene therapy, like with all the logistics and the insurance companies and all this stuff that we don't deal with during the clinical trial stage of things. So let me give you an example. The surgery was, was set up for Wednesday and the patient was ready. The OR was booked. I was booked. The hospital had called like media because this, you know, was a, a milestone. And so they were coming. And then I get a call on Monday from the insurance company. One of the medical directors at the insurance company said, there's a problem with the genetic testing for your patient. And I said, I said, what? I said, oh, you approved it already. He said, well, I know we approved it, but we're going over it again. And your patient doesn't qualify for the treatment. And, uh, he said, well, it says right there on the genetic testing report that you have a variant of unknown significance in the RP65 gene. I said, well, that was before the, they formalized the vocabulary for this. And it says right next to it that it's likely pathogenic. So it's likely pathogenic. He said, well, I'm sorry, I can't approve it. I was like, well, wait a minute, we'll get you more information. Uh, he said, well, call me soon because the shipping deadline is in two hours. And I'm like thinking of like OR schedule and the reporters coming and the patient. And so we did it. We had a genetic counseling emergency and our genetic counselor, actually it was a genetic counseling assistant, issued a new genetic report within an hour, updating the terminology of it and sent it back. And then we got approved and they shipped the drug and we did it. And the reporters came and 
uh, most of all, the patient did really well. I, I smile every time I think about him and the whole experience. But, you know, then there's other things like I got on insurance because of this exposure. I got on like an insurance panel to try to get guidelines for who should go with Sterna and stuff like that. So talk about being in, in the right place at the right time. All 99 and 999% of the credit goes to the team at Penn who invented Let's Learn. Well, that, that's very humble of you to say, but the insurance story, who, who would have expected such drama at the last minute with the insurance company? But I guess maybe in our world, that's not totally unexpected. But I will add just for listeners out there that I know that in virtually all cases thus far, most cases... Luxterna has been covered by insurance companies. So thanks for being the first to get insurance coverage. It is expensive, but I'll emphasize that we haven't had any patients with insurance that haven't been able to get treated. You know, maybe it takes a long time to get all that get yeah. it through, but yeah. Good points. So let's talk about vitamin A, because this is a really important study. There's a long history here. And let's begin by talking about the original study that the late Elliot Burson did. And this was more than four decades ago. Can you just give us an overview of what he did and what results he reported? Sure. Dr. Burson always told me and taught me to listen to the patients. And I think that's a very valuable, one of many very valuable lessons I I learned from him. And he noticed that this was the 80s, that people were coming in taking vitamins, trying to help their RP because there was nothing. So people were taking vitamin E, which was an antioxidant, which was very popular as a concept around that time. And people were also taking vitamin A, which is like, we've all like heard this, the stories like vitamin A is good for your eyes. And, you know, the explorers, when they came across to the new world, they couldn't see, and then they ate some carrots and then they could see again, they could see the stars again. And so, you know, this is a night blinding disease, so maybe vitamin A helps. People were taking it. So he, like a good clinician scientist, said, we're going to test this with a clinical trial, a randomized clinical trial, which is amazing because it's the right way to get as close to the truth as we can. So there were 600 people, and they were split into four groups, vitamin A, vitamin E, both, or none. And he followed them for five or six years, uh, which is a really long time. So it's one of the biggest, longest, most extensive clinical trials that's been done for RP, probably the, the most. And the patients were followed very carefully over this time with all kinds of tests, and most notably the electroretinogram. And so what did Dr. Burson ultimately conclude after that long study? The conclusion was that vitamin A slows down the progression of typical retinitis pigmentosa, and that vitamin E makes it go a little faster. So in the 80s and 90s and 2000s and 2010s, every patient with a typical form of retinitis pigmentosa who came to Mass Ioneer got a packet of information about that had a reprint of the study, a form where to get the vitamin A to take, not to take a form where to get the vitamin A, uh, not to take the vitamin E, and three quarters of the clinic notes talking about, okay, so if you're gonna take vitamin A, you need to get your liver tested yearly. If you have osteoporosis, uh, you should take a break. And, and all this discussion about vitamins, because that's that's all they had back then. And that that was a relatively high dose of vitamin A. And it was specifically, I remember vitamin A palmitate at 15,000 
international units. But I think an important point is even Dr. Burson acknowledged that the results weren't, you know, a home run. They were relatively modest, or maybe he didn't admit that. I'll tell you what he would say. Too if he, much, but if he were here, he would have interrupted you three sentences ago and said, yeah. it's not a high dose of vitamin A. It's only 15,000 units, 75,000 units is the toxic dose. And we've had a very good safety record with people on vitamin A in the context of yearly liver function testing. And that's true. But yeah, the results are modest, a modest slowing of the disease. But if it's true, that really builds up over the long term. And he had, he made this table, which still sits in our clinic today, of how many extra years of vision you would get if you started vitamin A. And we talked about this with, with patients. And so you might have side vision for 25 years instead of 20 years on the vitamin A. And this was very powerfully drilled into all of our patients here. Right. And, and that's an important point. I don't, I don't mean to discount that. But one of the big challenges is that the endpoint that he used, the outcome measure, was the electroretinogram. And can you talk about briefly what that measures and what the limitations of an ERG, what those limitations are when trying to evaluate efficacy of a therapy? Sure. Electroretinogram, it's like an electrocardiogram of your heart, you know, where they put the stickers on and you see the electrical beating of the heart, except when we do it on the eye, we don't, we don't use stickers. Uh, we use a contact lens and there's, there's other ways to do it. And you see the electrical activity of the retina after you flash it with light. And depending on the brightness of the light and the pattern and all that, you can very elegantly distinguish responses between the two types of light sensors, the rods and the cones. Many of your listeners might know the rods are for the night. The cones are for the day, and there's other differences too. And in retinitis pigmentosa, in particular, the rods have trouble first, followed by the cones, and in other inherited retinal disorders, it can be different. So it's a very powerful diagnostic tool for understanding what's going on with the rods and cones. Now, it's really quite remarkable how in retinitis pigmentosa, the electroretinogram in a very orderly way goes down over time. And by orderly, when you do a graph of the patient's cone electroretinogram over time, it gives you this, on a log scale, it gives you this very straight line. And I have to say that the system we have here is different than the regular commercial ones, and it had a lot of care put into it. So it's not necessarily fully applicable to every ERG, but in any case, it's very good at quantifying how much functioning retina there is. So the disadvantage is it's not directly measuring somebody's vision. So the closest thing that's correlated with it is like a wide visual field test. And that's really testing somebody's side vision. So you press the button when you see the light coming in, you can say, okay, you saw 90 degrees to your right, but you can only see 30 degrees to your left and with the smaller light, you know, et cetera. So it's only correlated with that, but it doesn't rely on any human input. It's a really good measurement. So if you can show that the electroretinogram is not declining as fast in someone, it's a surrogate measure that you're keeping their retina healthy. On the other hand, it's not proving, like to the FDA or some regulator or to some doctors, that you've directly helped somebody's vision. But me, having been somewhat impartial witness to the numbers and the correlations between the different outcomes, I really do think that it reflects what's going on inside the eye. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah, yeah. So I think there are two important points. On one hand, you feel like it's a worthwhile measure of disease and, well, disease progression and the potential efficacy of a therapy, but it's not an endpoint that the regulators 
recognize at this point. So that's an important limitation. I think another thing you said is Mass Ioneer has some really great <laughs> ERG equipment that may not be available in other clinics. So that that's a limitation also for for using it widely as a clinical trial measure. It's been one of my projects on the on the back burner to implement the system that that we use on modern commercial ERG so that everybody can do it, but waiting for funding and uh, and bandwidth to do too. I, I think that would be valuable for the community someday. Interesting. Well, good to know. I will pass that information along to my science colleagues at the at the mm -hmm. foundation. So those initial results came many years ago for Dr. Burson's vitamin A study, and it they were always kind of controversial, or maybe not kind of, they were controversial. They were controversial. They were, yes. There were some clinicians who said, sure, no problem giving vitamin A to a patient as long as you're monitoring their liver enzymes. And then there was a pretty large number of clinicians who were very opposed to it. But what actually inspired Eric Pierce, you and the Mass Ioneer team to reevaluate vitamin A or to reanalyze the data? Uh, well, getting into the criticisms first. So, so one specific thing was that it was pointed out that much of the effect of vitamin A and vitamin E happened in the last two years of the trial, like years five and six. And so it was thought that maybe there's something a little off about what was you know unusual about what was happening in those two years. And that's made it less reliable that the effects were going to hold up. And also to make matters uh, more complicated, there was a doctor who was giving out vitamin E as a treatment for RP. And uh, there was lots of very contentious debate between the doctor who, who wanted to continue giving vitamin E and Dr. Burson, who said, well, I have the only data that shows that you shouldn't give it. And where's your data? And it was this whole contentious field of like the generation above us that we didn't really want to tread into. But here we are. So Dr. Pierce uh, had the idea that perhaps the reason why it was only a modest effect overall is that the people with RP was caused by certain genes could respond well to the vitamin A and some people it didn't help at all. So maybe if you average them all together, you, you get a smaller effect, but it, maybe it's helping some people a lot. Maybe it's helping some people not at all. For example, vitamin A binds uh, rhodopsin, one of the proteins in rods that is the actual light detector. And so maybe it helps the rhodopsin people, um, but doesn't help everybody else, or maybe there's some subset. So the plan was to do the DNA sequencing of all the patients from the clinical trial and then see which ones it helped and which ones didn't. Now, that sounds really simple, right? So let's just sequence their DNA. But remember, uh, this trial was started 40 years ago. Who has DNA from 40 years ago from 600 people that did a clinical trial? Well, they were so organized here that we had all the DNA. First of all, the DNA was collected. It wasn't even a, this is like the first RP biobank was here. It was like, thanks to the foresight of Dr. Burson and Ted Dreija, we have freezers full of DNA from RP patients linked with clinical information. It's like a goldmine of information that, that we're going to get into in a minute. So we were able to, to recover the DNA from so, so, so many decades ago. It was still good that folks in the lab were able to extract it which wasn't a given. Kinga Bujakowska, Ricardo Sangermano, 
Emily Place. There's just teams and teams of people working on this. I, I even hesitate to mention a few names because I'm leaving more and more out. In the end, we got the genetic solutions for almost for almost 600 people. So almost 600 families, we solved genetically their RP. And that's including some of the patients from additional trials that we added later, because just so your, your listeners know, when you do genetic testing for RP, we only find the solution about two thirds of the time. So you don't always find the solution. But anyway, so to find over almost 600 people, so the solutions linked to their clinical data is and linked to whether they took vitamin A or vitamin E or both or, or not, it, it was a big momentous achievement to get to that point. And my job in it uh, was to just do the statistical analysis to show uh, which groups vitamin A helped. You know, I got into it about seven years ago. It had already been going on for like 10 years. So all this beautiful work had been done on the genetics and on the clinical trial. Oh, and we recovered all the clinical trial data too, which you might not think would even exist anymore, but all the individual data, Carol Weigel, the data manager from the original trial worked with uh, other folks here to like recreate that database in a modern way. It was a, a real tour de force. And so we finally got to the point where we could test which groups responded to vitamin A. So I learned how to do the statistics from Michael Sandberg, who's now retired, and I just kind of volunteered to do that part of the analysis. And so I did, and something strange happened, which was that there was no vitamin A effect that I could see. And so I checked it and rechecked it, and you know we re-reconciled the data. And my first conclusion was not that there's no vitamin A effect, it was I must, I must be doing it wrong. <laughs> Not only am I doing it wrong, I'm like messing up 40 years of other people's good work by like doing it wrong. So Dr. Pierce agreed to, to sequence more patients. We got a, another statistician to collaborate in the program. We fixed things up. <laughs> and it turns out there was an effect of vitamin A, but smaller. And we realized some of the difference was that we had additional data from years five and six that we used. And so the critics who said that the data was a little bit scattered in the years five and six, those turned out to be right. So it was a little bit less. And then we added in one additional piece of information, which is the timing of the ERG. So it turns out, and this wasn't known at the time of the study, that the time it takes for the cones to respond to the light can give a prediction about how fast the disease is going to progress. The ones that respond quickly progress more slowly, and the ones that respond more slowly progress more quickly. Did I say that right? I think so. <laughs> okay. This is uh, actually quite a large effect. So people with low implicit times have very slow progression rates. People with high implicit times progress quite rapidly, you know, on the scale of RP. It's, it's a slow disease no matter what, but, you know, on, on the scale of, of many years. So when we take this into account, it turns out that by a crazy coincidence, more people in the vitamin A group had fast responding cones that were destined to do a little bit better and vice versa. So when we take this into account, the uh, effect of vitamin A overall goes away. And so uh, top line, we no longer recommend vitamin A for slowing the progression of disease in RP. But just to take a little aside, this was like very emotional for me. It's a, a little bit of a, a crisis, not just that we were like getting back into this contentious area that I told you about where everybody was arguing about it. It was that, like I said earlier, that patients have been coming here for decades being told how important it is to take their vitamin A and um, to be honest, I felt like I was kind of like stepping on the legacy of, of Mass Ioneer and Dr. Burson, who's my, my first teacher about RP. And uh, what are they all going to think when we come back and tell them that, you know, that it, 
was coincidence and Carol Weigel, she was like part of the first study. She's been doing this for years and now she's helping overturn this thing. But, you know, what really made me feel better about it is the important thing is that we have to do what's best for the patients. And the data is the data. That's what Dr. Pierce says. And if the data shows that vitamin A is not helpful overall, then it is what it is. And um, I hope that Dr. Burson will be proud of other things uh, that he's accomplished, uh, even if this you know, he was doing the best he could 30 years ago, uh, but now we have more information. And the information is that overall vitamin A doesn't slow the progression of RP. But there's some subgroup analyses that I can talk about if you'd like me to. Well, for for sake of time, let's leave it there. And I wanted to also have you emphasize that you did concur with Dr. Burson about vitamin E. Yes. That it does accelerate vision loss. That held up that vitamin E had a small but detrimental effect on the progression rate of vitamin E. And so there, there could be still be many ways that it, it could have been a fake out or whatever. But I do not think that patient that our patients with typical RP should take vitamin E. And the way that that is pr a practical thing is that some doctors start people on the ARITS2 vitamins that are meant for age-related macular degeneration. And those have vitamin E in them. And I don't think that they should be on them. Even if their macula is somewhat degenerated, they don't have macular degeneration in the sense that age-related macular degeneration that those vitamins were tested on. Right. And other antioxidants like lutein, zeaxanthin, stuff like that, although there isn't strong clinical evidence that it helps, you're not opposed to that, I presume. Yeah. So the, the DHA trial and the lutein trial that were done here are still on the books. So the DHA trial had a little bit stronger data than the lutein trial, which was a little weaker. And so when we have patients come back, you know, they can continue their DHA or their fish oil or their dark fish intake. That that's still on the we haven't gone back and reanalyzed that. So so that's technically that's still on the books. And sometimes we spend some time talking about that with patients. But really the whole field and the whole trend is moving towards the more modern therapies, which are the gene therapies and and, and related approaches. For interest sake, there is a kind of a resurgence in the antioxidant theory, and there's a, a trial going on for an antioxidant called N-acetylcysteine, NAC, or an analog NACA, N-A-C-A, and um, those are, are, start, are starting to enroll. We'll see if they work. Right. And to get back to Dr. Burson, I think it's important to say that one of his key contributions, not only the great care he provided to patient, especially at a time when so little was known about RP and other inherited retinal diseases. But he was really a big proponent of ERGs and really drove that measurement, that resource forward as a tool for evaluating the retina. And I don't know that there was anybody who did more ERG research and captured more ERGs than Elliot at the time. Yes, I'm very grateful for the work that he did. And Michael Sandberg was the, the main physiologist who was here, who worked on that ERG system. It's really a super diagnostic tool. It can be very confusing what's going on in the retina if you don't have the, the ERG. It's not that you can't, it's not that you can't do it. But if you said to me, Jason, here's a new patient, tell me how bad their RP is, you get one piece of information. I would ask for their cone flicker or electroretinogram, even more than the visual field or the visual acuity. I mean, because it's so well correlated and so well measured, 
And, you know, you can tell the difference between a cone rod dystrophy and a rod cone dystrophy, RP. And so sometimes people come in with like the completely wrong labels of, of what they have. And they're like, yeah, I always thought I had a central vision day vision problem, but they said I had RP. I'm like, yeah, you, the, the electroretinogram says your rods are working fine. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer. And it's nice to work at a specialty center where we have such good access to it. That's great. And so I, I know there are patients out there who have been taking vitamin A for a long time. They feel it's helping. Obviously, they're an N of one, so it's hard to know what would have happened had they not taken it. But what do you say to patients who want to continue on that regimen? Right. So now we're getting out of like the data zone and into the opinion zone. So I just want to make it clear. Different people are going to have different opinions on this. Right. I see a lot of Dr. Burson's old patients who have been so steeped in this that I worry that if I if I say you don't, if I take it away from them, then when their RP gets worse, then they're gonna say, ah, oh, I never should have stopped that. And then I don't care if they're mad at me, but I just, I don't want them to regret from themselves that, oh, I made the wrong decision on that. So I tell them, if you feel like you're doing good on it and wanna continue it and don't mind doing the liver tests and the possible risk, increased risk of osteoporosis, then you can continue it. But just know that we're not prescribing it to new patients anymore. One of my partners here, she really tells people to get off of it. So in full disclosure, this is kind of gets into the art of medicine thing. So yeah, I think that if someone is a longtime vitamin A taker and they really think it's helping them, our safety record has been good enough that I'm comfortable with the people continuing. If they have osteoporosis, then it's another reason. Um, there were some hints in the data that it could even be detrimental to patients with the US2A gene or the EYS gene. But you can read in the appendix of the paper. I really don't think that those results are reliable, and I don't think it's going to be making anybody worse. So maybe if I have an H2A patient, I'll say I'll be a little more firm to get off of it. But but really, what I really don't want is like a patient who's listening to the podcast who has an H2A gene to like not eat carrots or something, because you can have a normal diet. I don't want any extrapolation beyond these like very unstable numbers that change a lot when you add just small amounts of data about a few patients. That that was my experience with the trial. Right. Great points. Thanks for saying that. And I guess one other point about vitamin A is that for people with Stargardt disease and cone rod dystrophies, which are a lot different from RP, vitamin A is thought to be detrimental. So for somebody who has Stargardt disease or a cone rod dystrophy, they definitely should not take vitamin A. That that's correct, right? Yeah. You know, it's not it's not hard data based on on human experiments about vitamin A and Stargardt disease, but it's generally believed that since the defect in Stargardt disease is the processing of vitamin A and vitamin A metabolites build up under the retina, that you shouldn't take extra vitamin A. But Stargardt patients can have a normal diet. So they can eat carrots. I mean, it becomes may become different if we get involved into the potential therapeutic that Alpheus is developing, like maybe some dietary things go along with that. But for a regular Stargardt patient, you can eat a salad, you can eat a carrot, you can eat lots of carrots. And if people twist my arm, I say, I draw the line on drinking quarts of carrot juice. Shouldn't do that. <laughs> but I, yeah, that's where I draw the line. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I don't think a majority of people out there are drinking quarts of carrot juice, but well, I just want people to not have to worry about things that probably don't matter. Right. To right. It's hard enough to deal with the vision loss to say, now say, oh, I 
can't have carrots on my salad. Like, it's fine. Right. And a healthy diet is important yeah. for your retinas and the rest of your body, too. So you know, there's more and more evidence of, uh, about that, especially for age-related macular degeneration. Right. Right. Well, Jason, this has been an awesome discussion. It was interesting and fun learning about your career and how you got into ophthalmology and retinal research and became a surgeon. And I know the topic of vitamin A is a popular one, an important one. And I just want to thank you and the team at Mass Ioneer, Dr. Pierce, and all, you, all the people you mentioned and the many people you didn't mention for that great work you did in reanalyzing the data and not to be too self-congratulatory, but the Foundation Fighting Blindness funded both the original study by Dr. Burson and the reanalysis that you so eloquently talked about. So thank you. This has been fun. I've really enjoyed learning about your history and the vitamin A work. So thank you for taking time out of your busy day to share all that. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share the results with the larger community and for this forum and for all the support of FFB, which has really been invaluable. And none of this would have happened without the Retinitis Pigmentosa Foundation now, now FFB. So I hope your listeners can continue their support of it because it's really important and leads to a lot of good things. Well, thank you for saying that. And listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. It's great to have you and we look forward to having you back for the next episode. See you then. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.